We're in a series, actually ending it today, looking at money and the Bible through three relationships. We looked, first of all, at money and identity. Secondly, we looked at money and giving. And today, we're going to culminate the series with money and mission. How is it that we move forward beyond maintenance to mission? And what we're talking about, uh, the big idea in this whole series has just simply been that Christians live to glorify God and to serve King Jesus with life's treasures through these three relationships. So we want to make sure that our relationships to money are rightly aligned. And really, that's what the song and, and what Pink Floyd communicates through the song. I couldn't play the second verse. They get a little more descriptive, a little more colorful in their descriptive uh, in the second verse. So... Uh, uh, but but the, it, it reminds us of all the things that money can do and representing all the promise of what it promises to us. But the real problem and the truth telling, even of the lyrics of the song, is that none of it lasts. None of it lasts. It's fading at best. And so I want to confront the question this morning, how is it that Christians steward our money so that its impact, not only in our life, but also in the life beyond us, outlasts our time on earth and prepares our hearts even now for heaven and for eternity with God. This third relationship is the relationship of money and mission. And what I want you to walk away with today is just understanding that Christians glorify God and honor King Jesus when we understand that our obedience and our generous giving invests in the forward move of God's eternal kingdom in this world. There was an article recently entitled Christian Financial Motivations. It was the culmination of a report of a study conducted by the George Barna Research Group, entitled Generation Gap. And I started the series this way. I feel like I need to come full circle and make sure that I give props to those generations that deserve props. What Barna did is he compared the giving patterns and the motivations of those generations among Christians. He, he interviewed four generations, the elder the boomer generation, the Gen Xers, and the millennials, okay? And in those generations, he identified givers and keepers, those who gave their money and those who kept their money, respectfully. Givers and their ultimate financial goal was focused on either God or other people through the answers that they received to their questions. Keepers and their ultimate financial goal, as you might can infer from the name, was centered on themselves. Not necessarily being a derogatory description, but their answers just basically said that they were doing this for themselves or you know, whatever the case may be. But what may surprise you most is that of the four generations, can you guess which generation ranked as the highest in being motivated to give for others? Are you ready? The millennials. Bam. As a matter of fact, the millennials at 37% and the elders at 36%. So 
we were split. We were bookended on the oldest generation and the youngest generation that were regarded as, as adults. And the boomers and the Gen Xers, of which I would fall right in here, were actually significantly less than either of those two. Millennials ranked with the older generation in being motivated to give to provide for their family. Here's what I want to say. If you're 35 or under, I'm tracking with you in this way. I know you want something to invest your life in. And my message to you is there is no greater investment than the kingdom of God in every way. And if you're not a millennial, that's my message to you as well. Just because there is a sin or a qualification of a generation doesn't mean that your life must be ruled by it. Set the standard. Don't be satisfied to submit to what others tell us. Let's shoot and aim for what God has for us. And unless you think that in this study, the giver group were simply people with more money, that's in fact not true. Givers were not giving more because they made more. As a matter of fact, the keepers in this study statistically were more financially comfortable in their life. And here's the culmination of Barna's study. Christians with giving goals give a lot. Christians with keeping goals keep a lot. <laughs> and that's how their study went. Why do you give your money? That's what we're confronting today. Why? We're talking about motivation. The first week we talked about what? What is it that God makes us in redemption as Christians to, to give? He makes us believers. That's our identity. Who are we? And then last week, how is it that God would have us to give? But today, we're going to talk about why. Why give? Why give? What is God's plan for that? Do you give out of fear of what God might or might not do? Do you give out of shame of being less of a person if it were found out or the way God would look at you? Maybe out of obligation. Out of obligation to God or maybe expectation from God or even other people. How about obedience? You see, friends, Christians... Give for the glory of God. There's no higher goal. Now hear me. In my experience and the experience of so many that I've spoken with and counseled with in terms of stewardship, you never are absent from fear, shame, or obligation always entering in. Let me tell you why. Because Satan is always at work. He wants to tempt you to do something other than what God is leading you to do. But Christians, what I'm saying is never settle for fear, for shame, or for obligation to define their life in any way, specifically stewardship either. No, instead, we acknowledge, maybe I do give out of fear or shame or obligation, but I know that's not God's will for my life, so I'm not going to accept that. Rather, I want to press in to God's word and to his will so that he can take up greater residence in my own heart and I can find in obedience the joy and the pleasures forevermore that he's promised. And we are not satisfied until this heart is purged of every false ideology and idolatry that would cause us maybe to even act in a moral way that was not a godly motivation. For acting. You see, genuinely, my desire for us is that even through our stewardship of life and in our giving, that God's grace would come to greater fruition and presence within us and that we would be confident in that and find no shame, no obligation or, or fear. Why 
Is it good to give faithfully and generously to the Lord? Go with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 9. 2 Corinthians chapter 9. While you're turning there, let me just remind us. In chapters 8 and the first part of chapter 9, Paul has begun to teach these principles of how it is that we draw from God's grace in order to give. And he gives us nine principles of giving that are rooted in his grace. And from that, he comes to the final part of chapter 9. And now he's, he's speaking to motivation. He's speaking to the center of our hearts. And here's what he said. I'm going to begin reading in verse 6 and read through verse 15. But we'll focus on verses 12 to 15. But really, you need the whole passage to understand those verses. The point is this, he begins in verse 6. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion. For God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he has distributed freely, he has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others. While they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. What is this inexpressible gift for which Paul gives thanks? Let me tell you, here's how powerful God is. God takes the tangible minutia of this world, something as a simple piece of paper with some ink on it or some ink put into a number form and that which passes away so quickly can actually be used to bring lasting eternal glory that's the inexpressible gift that there's not anything in this world no matter how minutia no matter how tangible or small or short termed lasting that it is that when submitted to God he can't bring eternal glory from it and that's what Paul is speaking of here. When he begins this final section on his instructions for giving, he reminds us that what we get is directly related to what we give. That's what he says in verse 6. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. In other words, what we get is directly proportional to what we give. Not because God doesn't want to give us more. God's already given us far more than we deserve, right? In the gospel, in dying for us and giving to us eternal life. But he's talking about in the transaction of how we put our faith in him and live by faith and how it is that we receive in the everyday ongoings of life. 
He's saying that what you receive is directly proportionate to what you give. It may not be in the same way, the same manner, or the same uh, economic value necessarily. But he's simply saying this, that when our hearts are generous, our hearts are filled with overflowing abundance to be more generous. He's saying this, that in verse 10, when he says, he who supplies seed to the sower. You know what he's saying in verse 10? He's reminding us that in verse 6, we don't have to be snitchy with the seed that we sow because the one who supplies our seed will not run out of supply. So that we can sow seed in the world. We can give in such a way that we are confident we will not run out of supply because the supplier has no shortage and will not fall upon shortage. So he's, he's trying to encourage us here, friends. He's, he's trying to remind us. And then he has this incredible promise. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. And that's how he sets us up for this motivation for giving. The more we believe God's promise of grace to motivate our giving, the more joy and abounding grace will overflow in all areas of our life. That's what he's saying to us. And friends, when a Christ follower practices giving, it cultivates their life for God's kingdom mission in three ways. That's what I want you to see this morning. In three ways, our giving cultivates missional living. Here's way number one. First of all, giving equips a Christ follower to live missionally by cultivating a gospel-centered ethos. What do you mean by ethos, Pastor? Well, that is a word that we use here that literally means definitive characteristic, defining trait. And it is a word that draws from the identity of a Christ follower, which here we talk about a Christ follower's identity in four ways. Worshiper and servant and disciple and missioner. This is who God has redeemed us to be. And when we live true to our identity, there is a defining characteristic that is created by our life and by the community within which we uh, connect our life through which God's glory flows into the world. And so that's what I mean by this. It cultivates this centering of the gospel, this centering of Jesus in our life as a defining characteristic for our life. Look how Paul begins in verse 12. For the ministry of this service is how he begins. What is he saying there? What, what ministry? What does that word mean? Well, the word ministry literally just means meeting needs. That's all it means. When you see the word ministry, somebody has a need and that need's getting met by the service that's being performed in response to the need. And so what is Paul saying? He's saying that there is some need that has arisen and is being met. He's writing to the Corinthians and he's encouraging them to give generously so that someone's need can be met. Whose need? The church of Jerusalem. They were under severe famine. People were starving to death. It's not like they just hadn't been to the grocery for the week. It wasn't even like the milk and bread were gone because storms were threatening, you know. It's as if there was no crop not only to be harvested, there were no seeds to be planted. And he was saying, give generously that they might be able 
to sustain their livelihood. That was the meeting of their need. You see, giving is one way that every Christ follower serves the Lord and serves his mission. When we serve the Lord, we grow and we mature as Christ followers. Spiritual growth never occurs without serving the Lord. And spiritual growth never occurs without giving. Because not giving, and I would even add wrong giving, is always sin. Giving grows and matures the identity, the ethos of a Christ follower, so that we become more and more into the image of the Lord whose name we serve. Consider five areas in which this discipline of giving acts as a service to God. I'll move through these pretty quickly. They're just those different aspects of our identity. First of all, giving is worship. And when a Christ follower as a worshiper gives, they express honor and worth, which is the very essence of worship, to the only one who's worthy. So when we give our offerings, it's an act of worship. This is actually the first way that we see giving introduced in the scriptures. In Genesis 14, we see how Abraham encounters Melchizedek, and Melchizedek pronounces a blessing over Abraham, and he basically says this, you are highly blessed because God has bestowed that blessing upon you. And Abraham said, you're right, Jack, and I want to honor God with what he's blessed me with. Giving is worship. It's our foundation for all giving. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 verse 9, he says, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, grace, the work of God to bring us into salvation through Jesus Christ is the very foundation and central motivation for all that we do in the Christian life. There's never fear, there's never shame, there's never obligation that God wants to actually use to motivate you to serve him in any way, shape, form, or manner. And that's true in giving too. When our giving of all that we are able and even beyond as Paul teaches of the Macedonians in their example. When our giving in response to God's love in Jesus Christ. We desire to give more because we know his grace and the fullness of his joy that's overflowing. Giving is not only worship, it's ministry. And so the Christ follower as a servant understands that when they give, they're serving other people. This may be the most tangible way that we understand giving. Because we understand when a need arises and we can give to meet that need that we've just served another person. That's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 13, 14, and 15 when he says that your giving should be motivated by love and by equality and by blessing. And I, I don't know many people that when they see a loved one or someone that they feel affectionately towards or a friend, whatever the case may be, they see them in need and they're able to give something, either something or some money in order to meet that need that they don't sense that they were really used to bless that person. And what Paul says is, no, that's justifiable, that's right, because giving is an act of service to other people. When you give, you meet needs in the lives of others. We see this, we get this. 
It's one of the strongest of motivations for giving through the church so that she is built up, so that others can not suffer or live in need or want, but rather their needs can be supplied. But the Bible also tells us that the very way that we all give, which are through the spiritual gifts, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Ephesians chapter 4, and Romans chapter 12, where it teaches us about the gifts that God's Spirit bestows upon their people in order to serve in the church. Some have the gift of leadership, some have the gift of administration, some have the gift of teaching, some have the gift of serving, some have and, uh, the gift of hospitality, and the list goes on and on and on. And as the body all operates in unity together and each exercises their gift in order to serve to meet the needs of one another, one of those gifts that God bestows upon some of the people is to rise above and give. He gives them the gift of, the spiritual gift of giving. You see, all are called to serve. All of us are called to serve in those fundamental ways, to be faithful in our giving and in the discipline of it. Because when we do that, other people grow and grow up in Christ. And when I say grow up, you know I don't mean that derogatorily at all because we're all here to grow and to grow up, right? I am, and you know I need it. Okay, we won't argue about that. The third way is not only giving worship, giving is service, but giving is connecting. For the Christ follower as a disciple, connecting in community is critical to their life. We build community through giving when we provide a place for others to grow and to mature. We're, we're being bookended right now by things in our church's life that, that are phenomenal demonstrations of this. Our students just came back from a week of camp. That's why they're still kind of groggy this morning. Uh, my daughter slept 15 hours after camp. I'm like, I don't even want to be hit by that truck. You know, I mean, that's, that's rough. I'm over that. But they, they're able to go to camp. Why? Because faithful giving through the local church you go, well, don't they pay to go to camp? Yes, but that doesn't pay for camp. What about, what about kids' camp? It's coming up in just a few weeks when our younger students will go to camp as well and spend a week of, of the Word of God being instilled and poured into their life. This next week, there's a forecast for tornadic activity to happen in this building. It's called Vacation Bible School. And I promise you, it will be a storm of cataclysmic proportion. You ought to come and watch. You ought to come and invest and serve. It's fun. It's fun. Why does that happen? How does that happen? Because people give. People give so that other people can connect. Every week when a community group meets, when a worship service is held, every week when hospitality is set forth, people are we're able to do that because people have given so other people can connect. When one Christ follower gives, it encourages the giving of others by demonstrating the value of the church in community with one another. Giving is mission. For the Christ follower is missioner who gives so the gospel can go forth to the ends of the world. Listen to me. Mission in God's kingdom is moved forward when people give money. I'm not going to lie to you about it. I'm not going to short sell it to you, friends. 
We invest in God's kingdom work so others can hear the gospel, so they can believe in Jesus, and so they can live with him eternally. And we're passionate about that. Giving is investing as a faithful steward. When we give our money, as Matthew 6 tells us, our heart follows. That's true of the heart of this church too. When this church invests its money in the gospel, the heart of this church follows the money trail. Faithfully giving to God's kingdom work tethers our heart to Jesus for all of life. Let me just make a quick application of this. You see, for the Christ follower, a life of faithful stewardship is essential to grow your ethos. It's essential to grow your understanding of who you are in Christ. If you only think that God wants your money, hear me, I say this as graciously and as pastorally as I can. If you only think God wants your money, that is a sure sign that you are consumed with money or being consumed by it and it's becoming a false idol to you. Listen to me. God demands far more than your money. If you're a Christian, the Bible says you've been bought with a price by the blood of Jesus. God wants you, all of you, your whole life. And some of you believe giving is a way to buy God off. No way. No way. It's just an expression of the life that he's given to you. It's not about how much we give to God. It's about how we manage everything that God has given to us. How we steward our money. It's, it's, it's not just what we do, friends. It testifies, I am his my life is, is Jesus's, and I want you to see that in every area of my life, including my treasure. We serve King Jesus, and we serve others for his kingdom when we give faithfully and sacrificially to his work. Friends, the glory that God gets from a Christ follower who faithfully gives, that's great. That's great. But I want to tell you about a greater glory, and it's the second way that giving encourages and equips the Christ follower. Giving equips a Christ follower to live missionally by investing in a gospel-centered community. Now, I've already referred to this in one of the five ways, but I need to unpack it more as the local church. Consider how faithful stewardship builds and strengthens the church's community. Look at the remainder of verse 12 in 2 Corinthians 9. He begins, this service that you perform is not only supplying the needs of God's people, but is also overflowing in many expressions of thanks to God. You see that? It's overflowing in many expressions of thanks to God. Expressions of thanks from people you've never met, from voices you've never heard, from, from people you likely will never be introduced to. They're giving praise and thanksgiving to God because you've given to God. Community is essential to the gospel, not just to connect you relationally, friends, but to engage you relationally. Because when the gospel is received by a people, they form a community that is principally defined by the redemption and the work of God through the gospel. You see, as a Christ follower's life is to be good soil for the gospel seed, in other words, 
Everything going on within us at any given moment should be ready to receive the good news of the gospel so that we can be convicted of sin, so by faith we can trust and repent in faith. We can turn to him. We can follow in righteousness as he leads us forth. That's what it means for our lives to be good soils for the gospel seed that gets planted so it can take root and grow and grow Christ-likeness in us and grow us into Christ-likeness. But the same is true for a gospel-centered community or a local church. It's to be good soil for the Christ follower to plant their life to grow. You see, the church is not just a supplier of goods and services to you. It is a place for you to plant the roots of your life to draw the essential nutrients for your spiritual well-being so that you can grow and so that you can produce fruit that is everlasting for God. And I'm going to tell you what, the shallower your root ball, the more bitter your fruit. The deeper your roots, the more ridiculous your production. And that word's in a good way, ridiculous. If it's God's will for every rescued, regenerated, redeemed, reconciled Christ follower to identify their lives with a local body of believers, to live life together. We talk about this all the time. And work in the same manner to send the gospel forward to the ends of the earth. Here's another way to say it. That Christians willingly place their life in the care of a God-ordained, Jesus-consumed, gospel-centered, elder-led, Bible-preaching, people-serving, forward-mission-moving local church. Growing community, friends, is a living witness of the power of the gospel among a group of people to a larger number of people, to people who don't have their life invested. And you know what? Listen, if they're not rooting their life in the gospel, they're rooting it in something. Their jobs are never going to satisfy, not the deepest needs of their life. Their social network is never going to satisfy what only God can satisfy. Even their homes, their children and their spouses, when too much expectation is placed on people who cannot supply it, it will never satisfy them. But God will never disappoint when we root our life in his church and we draw from the gospel with others around us to see more of him take root in us. When you give to God, your first, your finest, and your foremost portion, that's what should be given through the local church. Now, I'm going to draw a comparison here, and I don't want you to hear me saying negative things about any other organizations. As a matter of fact, I'll align them with what I'm saying. But when you give to God your first, your finest, and your foremost portion, that should be given through the local church. Then you should give generously to other God-honoring causes as he leads. And I, I want to emphasize that. I say it for a number of reasons. Friends, listen, there are good Christian organizations and, 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 and partners that we align with. And the reason we do that is because we anticipate that our people are going to be far more generous beyond just the life of this local church. And, and that's one of the reasons we identify impact partners 
and impact organizations because as you are blessed by the Lord and you want to give more generously, we would say this, these are the organizations and these are the people we believe you should give to. We've vetted them of sorts, if you will. We know their leadership. We know their mission and their cause and their purpose. And we know uh, their doctrine. And so what's really going on? And we want you to give generously to them. Why? Because they're partners and they're helping us as a church go far beyond what we alone can do. And I mean that both locally and to the ends of the earth. I say this for a number of reasons, though with that priority being given to the local church. First of all, the local church is God's body in the world. It's the representation of eternity. No pressure here, but the church and our community together is telling the world what heaven's going to be like with Jesus. A little bit of pressure maybe, right? We're not expected to be perfect, but we are expected to be constantly looking to Jesus and giving honor and glory to him. The second reason is the local church is what we understand is the modern day storehouse. It doesn't mean that the local church operates identically to what the temple did in the Old Testament. But proportionately, we can bring application to understand how it is that God wants us to meet the needs of people's life. Adrian Rogers, one of the greatest orators of uh, the 20th and early end of the 20th century, said this, God's money should be given to God's house so God's work can be done in God's way. That's very good, so I didn't try to redo it. But the priority of every Christian's giving should be invested in the local church because she is the center of all God's mission in the world. The New Testament models that the giving of a Christ follower should be through the local church. Acts chapter 4 verse 32 tells us this, that that's what people did. They brought their offerings to the apostles who would become the elders And they administrated as the needs and as the mission of the church moved forward. I promise you this, friends. There are countless needs that we as pastoral and ministry and even the elders of our church, not only staff but non-staff elders, are confronted with on a weekly basis. You never know anything about for protection purposes, for sensitivity purposes. But I'll just simply say this. Because of your giving, you're meeting those needs. You're meeting those needs, and people know that, and it matters. Barnabas was one such person. The book of Acts tells us that Barnabas owned a field and that the Lord moved in his heart in such a way that he sold that field and he took the money from it and he gave it to the apostles so that needs in the church could be met. And do you know what took place in Barnabas' life? I believe is a direct result of the work through God's grace that took place in him being so generous in his giving. Barnabas became the lead grace identifier. Every time the gospel was preached and a new church got started, they go, hey, send Barnabas. Let's make sure that the true gospel is being preached and not some false hope. Because his heart had been purged. Fourth, giving to the local church that you're involved in keeps you accountable in giving to a larger community of God's people. I know we don't like accountability very much, do we? Only in the things we're good at. Let's not worry about things we're not good at. Friends, giving should never be a public marquee for Christians to advertise their self-righteousness. We know that's wrong. We see that in Scripture. But neither is giving only or always private and unknown. And this is where we don't like to talk about it. I don't like other people talking about my money. 
If it's only private and unknown, though, how is it that we can fulfill the direction of Paul to spur one another on, to excel in our giving? That's a clear principle and a clear practice. Paul said this, I'm telling you what the Macedonians did because I want you to feel a little, oh, yeah, oh, I think we can, I think we got this. I want you to measure up what their gift is and not compare yourself morally to see who God loves more, but rather to be challenged what God has done and to desire God to do something in us to the extent that it would pour over. It's not that the gifts are compared by God, but rather both gifts come together to bring greater honor and glory to God. Giving holds great potential to wrongly honor people. There's no doubt about that. That reveals that our own hearts are more full of money, though. But there's also an incorrect piety when we never speak of it. And it's an equally offensive and damaging sin in the church to act as if money is just, that's not part of spiritual stuff. It absolutely is. Because if we remove it from spiritual stuff, we say God can't use money to bring glory. And that's counter-biblical in every way. What we should do is when we wrongly celebrate it, be convicted and repent so God can be glorified through redemption among us. Fellow Christians should be encouraged and challenged by one another's giving to encourage us to excel in our own giving. I told you a couple of weeks ago in the small town I grew up in, there was a pastor and he pastored there for decades. But every quarter he published a giving list to the church of every church member and dot, 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 dot to the side what they had given to the church that month. I don't know. We're talking about adopting that. We'll see where we get to that. Just kidding. Just kidding. Some people give regularly through the church as long as the church does what they want them to do or as long as it does something that's beneficial for them or what they think the church ought to be doing. And, and when these things stop, so their giving stops. Friends, I, I say nothing's more disingenuous or destructive for your heart, your life, and for the community of Christ followers. It shows two things, that your motivation in the beginning was wrong and that ultimately even the offerings become an abomination to God. Fickle and manipulative support like this, it hurts the church But even more so, it destroys the individual Christian because they believe they can leverage God with their money. Instead of understanding life as a steward, people use money as a leverage tool. In just over 28 years of ministry, I've learned that those who give most generously to the church are those that give most generously everywhere. Why? They're just generous people. It's not an either-or scenario. And you, you can't really put your finger on them. Don't look for the bling. Look for the most consistently joyful people. And you will ask, how does joy continue to overflow from them? Because they've learned the principle of the sower, excuse me, of the supplier of the seed never runs out. So you can sow generously to reap in the same way you see generosity is joy producing and God gives those who are generous a greater supply so they can continue to grow their generosity let me just tell you something about our church and 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 I can say this from the beginning and and my words are accountable to those in leadership who've known and who continue to know 
we want to create a culture of stewardship, not only to build our ethos as Christ followers in faithfulness, but also to build a culture of generosity that defines our church. Why? Why? Because we want to spur every person to grow, to mature, and to excel as a faithful steward and in generosity. I don't know what you hear me say when I preach on money. I'm just be honest with you. I don't know exactly how it is that you hear this, but I'm not looking for you to become some philanthropist whose name is constantly in lights, friends. What I am laboring for is for you to trust that the gospel can take more root in your heart when money owns less of the real estate in it. And wherever you are today, whatever God has done in you, to trust that he wants to lead you forth in righteousness in regards to your stewardship. You don't begin to be generous when you get rich. As a matter of fact, if you're not generous before you're rich, it'll take an act of God to make you generous after you get rich. And the Bible tells us, he who is faithful in a little is the one who will be faithful in much, not the opposite way around. So those who are waiting on God to give them more before they can give more, it doesn't work that way, friends. It never will work that way. You be generous in proportion to what God has given you. That's what says to God, I am worthy of being given more and being entrusted with greater because I'm a faithful steward. The glory that God gives from a given community of Christ followers is greater still, greater still. So what does this mission look like through the church? Let's look at the third way. Giving equips a Christ follower to live missionally by investing in God's kingdom work. Look at verses 13 to 15. By their approval of this service, what approval? In other words, the people who receive the funds, the church at Jerusalem approving of this service. It's already said they were overflowing in thanksgiving because of the way that the churches had been meeting their needs. He says this, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others. While they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. Look what he said. Here's that easy, you want a, just a practical application? Submit to God. Recognize that your giving is a confession of his lordship in your life. And that generosity is a representation of what you believe he wants to do in you. And what does that produce? A longing of those who receive it for those who gave it. There is a spiritual connection that takes place. Derek Carr became the highest paid NFL player this week. Quarterback for the Los Angeles Raiders, excuse me. Oakland for the next, sorry. Sorry, I, I didn't mean to hit a nerve there. Five-year deal worth $125 million. I know, I, anyway. Here's what the reporters ask him at the press conference. What's the first thing that you will do with this money? 
Carr replied, I'm going to give my tithe first. Just like I did on my $700 college scholarship check. And he goes on to say this. There will be many people in this city that are blessed by this money. But there will be many people all around the world that will be helped and blessed by it as well. Friends, let me tell you something. If his heart were not lorded by Jesus early, Jesus wouldn't have received any of it at this time. And that's what he was saying. But he believed in the mission of God's kingdom such that not even the gift of fame in the NFL, maybe the highest plateau of fame that we could reach in the world today, the top of the sports world, will be honoring God with his salary. The church is the body of God's kingdom mission in the world. That's what Ephesians tells us in 3.10. That through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known. It's not enough to keep the lights on. It's not enough to keep the music agreeable. The church must move forward on mission to penetrate darkness in people's lives, in the world, and with the light of God's truth. Listen to me, friends. The church is an offensive strategy. The church only has an offense playbook. There is no defensive play in the life of the church. We don't even have a book that says defense on it. Why? Christ is our advocate. He's the only defense we need. But we don't run any of those plays. We let him cover it. It tells us that the church will move forward. Matthew 16, upon one confession that Christ is Lord and every ounce and every inkling of our life will move behind it to move the mission of God's kingdom forward. Every Christ follower joined within each other in the local church serving together to see the forward mission of God's work in the world. It's not enough for us to even meet budget. You see, budget is just a, a strategy, a plan for us every year to say this is what we believe we can do measured by what we believe God wants us to do. So yes, there is prayer and there is faith built into that. But there is also within that, God, what do you really want to do that we've not even yet imagined or conceived of? Do you know how many years this church has met budget in our 13-year history? Not once, not once have we settled for a number that's been put on the budget. Every year we've gone beyond, we've excelled beyond what we believe God wanted to do because we believe God wanted to do more through his church than we could have imagined or fathomed when we planned it. And that's the way the church ought to operate. Our mission is to get people not just into the church, friends. Don't pit the church against Jesus. But it's not just to get them into an organization. It's to get them into a relationship with Jesus so they can live in a community and plant their lives among a people where their life can be sourced with a grace and a strength that is otherworldly, that is heavenly, that comes from God alone. To live a life that they couldn't imagine in and of themselves. It's not enough for us to wait. We must go. And when you give, you participate in growing God's kingdom and multiplying his glory through the mission of the church. Friends, the missional ethos of God's grace 
is great within the life of a Christ follower. It's greater within the life of the community of Christ followers. It's greatest as the kingdom of God advances against the darkness of the world. Hear me, friends. Stewardship is God's strategy to resource the operation of his mission through his people in the world. Christians glorify God and honor King Jesus when we understand that our obedience and generous giving invests in the forward move of God's eternal kingdom in the world.